This is exactly right. Hi, I'm Erin Welsh. And I'm Erin Almond Updike, and we're the hosts of This Podcast Will Kill You on Exactly Right. We're back with our seventh season, which is bigger and better than ever. Because guess what? We're now a weekly show. This season, we're tackling everything from long COVID to norovirus, from the supplement industry to IVF, and so, so much more. New episodes drop every single Tuesday. Follow This Podcast Will Kill You wherever you get your podcasts. This story contains adult content and language, along with references to sexual assault. Listener discretion is advised. My thought was like, I loved Gary. I thought I was his favorite. Why didn't he pick me? When he was fixated on you, it was it was scary. I think he was dangerous. Some girls knew it. They weren't given the power to be heard about it. When Gary was mad, it was scary. I'm Kate Winkler Dawson, a nonfiction author and journalism professor in Austin, Texas. I'm also the host of the historical true crime podcast, Tenfold More Wicked on Exactly Right. I've traveled around the world interviewing people for the show. I've interviewed some people in person and some from my home studio over Zoom and they are all excellent writers. They've had so many great true crime stories, and now we want to tell you those stories with details that have never been published. Tenfold More Wicked presents Wicked Words is about the choices that writers make, good and bad. It's a deep dive into the stories behind the stories. This story is particularly upsetting to me because I have children and they have coaches, coaches that we really trust. I think that as a parent, you want to trust other adults to have your kid's best interest at heart. And sometimes it's just not the case. That's what happened here. Piper's story is very personal and she's very introspective. It's a really good story and a cautionary tale. I'm Piper Weiss. I'm the author of the memoir, You All Grow Up and Leave Me, which is a mix of investigative crime reporting and coming of age narrative. And this is a memoir slash true crime. So you're going to tell us the story of someone who was really important in your life. But clearly we know this is not going to go very well because it is true crime. Yep, exactly. I didn't initially intend for this to be a memoir. It just came out that way because it was such a personal story to me. And yet I wasn't directly involved in the crime. I was almost like a child bystander. And I didn't really know where I fit in the story until I investigated it and wrote through it and figured out why it still mattered to me, which is, I think, a thing for anyone who writes true crime. Yeah. Some Sometime in the process, you realize, wait, why am I obsessed with this? What does this mean to me? The reporting process became, I turned it in on myself, you know, and, and I realized that there was a lot to explore inside me and maybe inside, you know, the experience of a lot of girls that didn't have a voice and were in a similar experience and had a very kind of confused take on it years later. It's not as clear cut as you think when you're being abused by someone in power and you're a young girl. Really good parents can be in the room and not realize that it's happening. And he was a little bit tragic as much as he was 
kind of delightful. But when he fixated on a student, he was not only really unhealthy, but he was totally dangerous. So it starts for me in the fall of 1992. 14 years old, living on the Upper East Side of Manhattan. I go to an elite all-girls school, just starting ninth grade. There's pressure on all of us to get into college, and we have to start prepping for everything from SATs to getting on varsity teams. Meanwhile, there's a lot of social pressure that I kind of was experiencing because I was a bit of a late bloomer, and (laughs) my friends, they were socializing with boys from other schools, and it felt like they were advancing faster than I could keep up with, just in terms of even being friends with the opposite sex. They were already dating and you weren't even at that point. Yeah, I don't even know if they were already dating. The boys liked them, they didn't like me. And I was afraid that that they would go away if I couldn't keep up with the boys liking me. But I remember this time growing up in the city, there were just like a lot of these prep school boys had a lot to prove and they were really kind of shitty to girls. And it was something you kind of giggled off, you know? And it was a lot of just like, sit on my dick, bitch. And we would and be like excited about it. Because you were getting attention. Because you're getting attention. So there's just like all these mixed messages. Meanwhile, this is set against pre-internet, frothy, current affair era of the media that was really hyper-focused in New York. That era of true crime where you had the Long Island Lolita, the preppy murders had happened. So there was a lot of this idea of danger. And we were taking like self-defense in PE class because there was this constant thing of date rape was a concept being debated even. And at the same time, there was like a big child abuse case with Joel Steinberg. You and your friends are sort of on alert at this time period. Completely, completely. We knew that our bodies were changing and that we were considered prey everywhere we went. And yet at the same time, we wanted to be really independent and we wanted to be really grown up. What happens is there's this tennis coach who is the most coveted tennis coach of this little rich kid bubble. And his name was Gary Walensky. I had always played tennis. It was kind of just something as I have a lot of theories on it. A Jewish girl whose parents grew up in Queens, you know, and that moved to Manhattan. There was kind of this thing where, you know, they weren't allowed to go to tennis clubs when they grew up. And now they had figured out from just a certain amount of hard work, how to get their kids into a better life, which was just kind of like old money waspier. Little status symbol. It was a total status thing. So I was raised kind of playing tennis. It was like a thing you did. But Gary was the coach you wanted to have. And I didn't care, you know. Sure, I guess if he's going to get me on the tennis team so I can get into college. And then I met Gary. And Gary was my favorite adult. He was a Willy Wonka character where he literally just had candy everywhere, just like coming out of his ears. He would drive you to the tennis courts in a car, which was kind of a novelty because nobody had cars as teenagers in Manhattan. So it wasn't like an official school bus. It was like this cool 56-year-old man who acted like a teenager driving you in his car. And you listened to, you know, like the cool radio station. And he had mixtapes. 
And there was always Big League Chew and licorice. So the opposite of your parents is what it sounds like. Totally, totally. It was just freedom time. And he was really fun on the courts. Instead of it being a really competitive environment on the courts, he made it really fun. He changed the rules all the time of the game. So it never felt like you were playing the same game and just trying to hone your backhand or forehand. He made these T-shirts with his cartoon likeness on it. He sent everyone (laughs) valentines. He really knew how to win teenagers, especially teen girls, over and almost have us not compete for his attention, but definitely vie for it. And shortly after I started playing with him, he called my mom. And at this point, I'm doing really bad in school. I feel like I'm doing bad socially, whatever that means. I feel like a kind of an outsider, an ugly duckling, which I think a lot of people feel at that age. And this man who kind of has a certain cachet and power in this world calls my mom and is like, your daughter, she may be really little, but she's really good at tennis. And I think she's special and has potential. And I will work with her a second day a week for free just because I want her to get on the tennis team. That must have felt really good. It was amazing. And I loved hanging out with Gary. Those days were on Saturdays. So that meant that afterwards we would go out to eat. We could go see a movie, have quality time just as friends. I always played with him with maybe one or two other people. So I knew he taught so many girls throughout the city. He was also a tennis coach at the varsity team at the other girls' school across the street from me. So he had a lot of students, but you always felt like you were one of two with him. You felt special. The months go by and I kind of feel like I'm getting my stride and a little bit of confidence that I didn't know that I could have through a sport too, which is just not me. I was writing moody, embarrassing poetry usually. Meanwhile, what I didn't know is that Gary did have obsessions with his students and one in particular She was a little bit older. She was 17. She was one of his best students, was nationally ranked, which was a big deal at the time. She was really uncomfortable with how close he was getting to her and how he crossed lines. Gary was the kind of guy in the community that was Uncle Gary. You know, someone's mom invited him for Thanksgiving dinner because he didn't have somewhere to go. Someone else's mom had him come to the Hamptons for a week because he didn't have somewhere to go. There was this built-in trust that parents had for this guy. What is his personal life like? So he grew up in Long Island. His parents divorced when he was about 12. There's not much about that time, but I imagine it was traumatizing. It was the mid-50s, and he stayed with his father as opposed to his mother. And when people would ask him in high school about his mother, he would say that she's dead, when in fact she lived Mm. uh, in the next town. He started college, he dropped out, and then through the 70s, he started to build up his career as a tennis coach, and that was at the detriment of the one serious relationship he had with a high school sweetheart that ended in divorce after six months. He seemed to focus solely on being this coach of tennis for adults first, coaching these romantic singles mixers in the swinging 70s, and also working up in the Catskills. He was also on a game show called To Tell the Truth. Hmm. because he was famous for teaching tennis on roller skates. The more gimmicks he did through the 70s and early 80s, 
he started to realize gimmicks not only worked, they got the attention of parents and their kids. So he started to teach kids more and he started to teach at these girls' summer camps. And that's where it seems there's a record of him starting to have these unhealthy obsessions with teenage girls. He was fired from one of these camps for inappropriate behavior. But again, this was a period of time where there wasn't social media. It wasn't a real way to spread the word unless it was parents. Exactly. The laws were different. And my sense that I got got really close to the line, but never overtly crossed it as far as we knew at the time. So he continued as a coach until 1988. He's still single. I guess he's been dating here and there. But friends that I spoke to that knew him at the time and also fellow coaches noticed that there were things that were not quite right with him. He snapped a lot and for no particular reason. Describe that. What would happen? He would be on the courts coaching adults. Everyone's having a great time. And then he would start making fun of one person and isolating them and making everyone laugh at that person until that person had to walk off the court because they were so upset. It seemed unprompted. It seemed random. There were other accounts of him sharing his discontent that seemed disproportionate to the issue. Like he really hated certain men that worked at some of the different clubs that he worked at in a way that made one friend uncomfortable. So he was actually fired from multiple places and eventually from this summer camp. But things really came to a head for him in 1988 when he was arrested for the first time for his bizarre behavior. He was stalking two boys he'd never met before, age 10 and 11, at a bus stop in Manhattan on their way to school. Every morning, dressed in a black leather mask and black spandex, he would stand first stand across the street and just film them waiting at their bus stop. And each day, he would get physically closer and closer to them. God, how terrifying. Terrifying. And then he would actually just mimic their moves. So he was almost like a pantomime. And the kids just kind of ignored him. And it was like 80s New York, a weird, wild time in the city. And you're taught by your parents to just avert your eyes, ignore them, you know. Don't. Walk away if you need to. Exactly. Don't engage. Don't engage. And also adults are the bosses, you know, even if they're kind of wacky. And eventually, after a month, he tries to grab one of the boys as he's getting on the bus. So the boy tells his older brother. His older brother takes him to the police the next day. The police come with him to the bus stop. And once again, Gary's there and he's there with his camera in his costume and the police pull him over and arrest him. And they open the trunk of his car. They find hundreds of tapes of these boys day after day that he's been stalking, as well as a third victim, a little girl who had no idea that he was following her every day. This this happens several years before he becomes your coach. That's right. So five years before he becomes my coach, he is arrested for stalking these children. And because it's not a felony at the time to stalk a child, he is given six months mandatory therapy and it's not on any kind of permanent record. Is this a psychotic break? I mean, what do you think that was? Because that is unusual behavior when he is trying to snatch a kid and the kid clearly looks alarmed and he comes back the next day and tries to do the same thing in the outfit. 
Yeah. I mean, that is a certain amount of, you know, being unaware of society's laws, right? So what what, what do you think that might have been? This is why I initially was so interested in him is because, first of all, he was a man who liked costumes, whether it was to delight children or to frighten them. He knew the power of playing a character. I think it was his method of control, especially with children. I do think there were psychotic breaks in his life and the biggest one that happened we'll get to that were definitely kind of under the surface for a while. But I also got the sense from him that it was always under the surface. So the side of Gary that I knew and loved wore wigs and tutus and roller skates, not black leather masks, but Groucho Marx masks. Kind of the same difference in a weird way. Knew it had some kind of effect on kids. And your parents did not seem alarmed by any of his kind of hijinks. They just thought he was a fun coach and was getting results from you. I loved him. We knew most of his students. They went to school with me. My mother was friends with their mothers. He had a knack for charming moms. He would call the moms on the phone and give progress reports. He almost was like a Gabby aunt. He could just shoot the shit with moms as well as he could with teenage girls. That was his element. So, and and I've got to say, I'm just like, I had very protective parents and I was in the most protective world. So part of why I think this story is interesting is that if it could happen in this kind of such a closely guarded community that had all the money and had all the trappings of protection. It can happen anywhere. It can happen anywhere. And, and a lot of times we're fostering it without realizing it, kind of creating this word of mouth power dynamic with these members of the community that kind of wiggle their way in and become the go-to person. It's a lot of power. It is a lot of power. And those are textbook. I mean, not that this is true of all people, but being an upstanding member of the community is a very savvy way to be an abuser in the community. You know, that's how you get your foothold in. So meanwhile, I'm having a great time with him. There is this weird memory that I have of going to an erotic bakery with him, but he didn't say anything. It was just we were standing in the bakery and there were penises everywhere and he was talking to the counter person like he knew her. And it was just like he was running an errand. And and I was laughing because I thought I was the only one that could see the penises. That's how old I was, the chocolate penises, where I was just giddy over it but couldn't say anything to him. And he was like, what? What's so funny? A few weeks later, now, now we're into April. Wait, did you tell your parents about this erotic bakery? No, not only did I not tell my parents, I actually completely forgot about it until I was— Memory is a crazy thing. Until I started obsessively researching this story and I had this memory, this can't be. And of course, this was the 90s in Manhattan. I remember specifically the place where we went to eat, which still exists on the Upper West Side. I remember we walked three blocks to what is now a laundromat. And I looked it up and it was a famous erotic bakery that was around in the 90s that got closed. I still question why would I have the most vivid memory of this? And yet at the same time, maybe I was alone with him. Why did I bury it? I definitely didn't think that 
it was weird. It wasn't him. traumatizing you. It right? didn't traumatize me. And it just kind of was a wacky thing Gary would do. So meanwhile, he has this student that he is giving gifts to and calling all the time and is really making her uncomfortable. She's 17. Her mom's a psychologist. They're very close. She tells her mom she's uncomfortable with Gary. And they let him go in a very nice, gentle, thoughtful way, but cut the cord. And this is a thing that sets Gary off. I'm talking with writer Piper Weiss about Gary Wilinski, who was her tennis coach in Manhattan in the 90s when she was a teenager. So here's where we are. Gary's growing obsessions with young girls, particularly one teenage girl, has become dangerous. The 17-year-old has told her mother that Gary makes her feel uncomfortable, and the mother tells Gary that he can no longer coach her, and he has to stay away from her. The rejection that he takes so personally is also just really twisted in his mind because, you know, from letters and accounts that he wrote himself during this time, he seemed to see these certain students that he fixated on as both daughters that he was protecting and lovers and and captives. Just power. So it is. It is power, and it's just conflated with he doesn't have a family, he doesn't have a partner. He has convinced himself that this person that he has put all of his energy into coaching owes him complete family love. Devotion. Devotion. Because that's his identity as being this elite tennis coach, right? That's right. And being beloved by the girls. What is the sexual component? Are we getting to that? Or is there one starting now? The sexual component, I didn't understand any of it until many years later. But what happens is he starts going on this shopping spree in New York. He buys a wheelchair at a medical supply store. He buys all different kinds of torture sex toys. So a lot of this are written down frantically on lists that he made. Under one heading is kinky. And under one heading is large knives, blood catcher. In a matter of months, he drops at least $10,000 on sex toys, masks, wigs, and knives and guns. $10,000 that he has or doesn't have. He takes out cash from the bank. Then he goes upstate near where he used to coach girls at tennis camps and finds a house, a cabin in the middle of the woods. It's really remote, at least a half a mile off a small road, off another road. You can't get there in the snow. And he starts outfitting it every week. He is still coaching me at this point in Manhattan and then driving up four hours north every week to outfit this kind of run-down cabin with security cameras. Oh um, he's making a bunker. He's making a bunker. So there's a pulley system on the ceiling. There's shackles over the bed. And the other things that always struck me was he went to Kmart and bought a nightgown for her. He made a mixtape. Is this for the girl who let him go? Yeah. So unbeknownst to everyone, he's preparing this cabin for this girl who let him go months earlier. So it's April now. And she let him go in January. 
His mood has changed, and we've noted it. He was snapping at my partner on the court, and it scared us a little bit. He wasn't showing up as much. He was sending a substitute, which was strange. He had wasn't shaving. Big shift in behavior. Big shift in behavior. And one night in the car alone with him, maybe two weeks before everything happened, he asked me not to get out of the car and said, I'm so depressed. And I said, well, I'm depressed too. I have that. He's like, no, 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 you don't understand. I don't have anyone. You all grow up and you go away and you leave me alone. I was so flattered that he chose me to tell the adult thing to. I said, Gary, I promise I won't leave you. Wow. What was his reaction? He was very grateful. I mean, he was tearing up. It was dark that night. I couldn't really see inside the car. I felt like... Gary is in a bad place and I want to be there for him. It felt like a mature moment for me. And I was such a kid in that moment because I was not understand. I was reading it all wrong and that it was really inappropriate what he had said and done. And it could have been worse. But luckily for me, it wasn't. Then two weeks later, there's a big tournament in upstate New York. And the young woman that he is obsessed with is playing at this tournament and he goes in disguise. He's got a tracking device on her family's car. So he follows them up and he watches the match with binoculars in disguise. And he's actually been stalking her in different disguises for a couple of months and keeping lists of where she plays tennis now. And when she gets out of school, he has a list of questions he wants to ask her that are so strange and teenager-y even. Who is your best coach? Who gave you everything? How far did you go with that guy? That's not how a 56-year-old man talks, no less to a 17-year-old girl. So he follows her and her mom with night vision goggles straight out of Silence of the Lambs which had just come out a year before. He goes back to their motel, waits for them in the parking lot, dressed by some accounts an old grandma, by other accounts a homeless man. His face is covered in charcoal. He's got a hat covering him and he's pushing a wheelchair. Oh my gosh. And underneath a blanket on the wheelchair is a gun, is a shotgun, but he also has an electric cattle prod and he attacks the daughter in the parking lot while she's with her mother getting out of the car at night at around 10 o'clock at night after the match. And the mother steps in fearlessly and is just a true mama bear and fights him off heroically and he starts hitting her with the cattle prod. The daughter runs to the front desk of the Sheridan Hotel, gets help from a desk clerk. So she also saves her mother. It's actually this incredibly beautiful, powerful thing. And Gary, the weird thing is he doesn't use his gun. He just pulls it out from the wheelchair and just backs away and gets back into his car. And well, because this is not the way things are supposed to go. This isn't how he planned it. He's thrown off. Exactly. Exactly. He's so thrown off that he goes across the street. This is this is a, a town right outside of Albany that's kind of like a strip mall. Here's a Sheraton motel. There's the Turf Inn. So he goes across the street to another motel, checks in there under another name, and starts unpacking all of these bags he has and throwing things in the woods of the behind the parking lot of this other hotel. So there's a dildo and a tennis racket. And a bunch of letters to her that he recorded on cassette tapes. Also photographs of her and possibly other students that he was stalking. And someone the following day would be walking their dog in the woods there and would stumble across all of this evidence. 
Meanwhile, we're still in the night. An hour has passed since his attempted kidnapping. It's gone wrong. He's freaking out. Now he's checked out of the second hotel and he's driving erratically with his lights off. And there's already a call out for a white Lincoln where there's an attempted kidnapper. And they see this guy in a white Lincoln driving with his lights off. The cops do one siren. He pulls into a parking lot next to the hotel. There happens to be a local cameraman in the back seat of the cop car. So immediately starts filming. Gary parks in this parking lot. The cops are behind them filming Gary. He seems to be having this frantic conversation with himself. And then the gun goes off and he is dead. When the cops search his car, they find this lease and the lease takes them upstate another hour or so north. And they find this cabin that's just a, a torture chamber oh, gosh. that he was clearly planning to keep one or more victims there for as long as he was alive. There's also suggestion that he might have had plans to kill himself and others. His victim and her mother had to go to a hospital, did not recognize him, didn't realize it was him that was attacking them because he was in such disguise until later when it became clear that it was Gary and they were in the hospital and they... Then the news reports started to come out. And that's when I started to hear about it, but we didn't talk about it. Even my friend that I played with, she's the one that called me and said, Gary died. And at the time, all I knew was that he had depression and that we were very close. So I was very sad. And she said, oh, Piper, you don't know the half of it. Just wait. And I said, what, what? And she said, I can't talk about it. It's, it'll be on the news. Sure enough, you know, it was the cover of every newspaper the next day, Chamber of Horrors, Coach Kills Self, tries to abduct girl. Oh my gosh. Um, what did your parents say? Not much. My mom was really a hands-on parent at the time. So she was definitely concerned. She was talking to other mothers. How are you? What are you thinking? But I think she must have said, do you have any questions? And I just didn't know where to even start. I just had seen the headlines. So I didn't know. I remember we watched footage of his suicide on a current affair. So she was open to me seeing the things, but I still didn't understand that he was, I, I, I defended him. Well, how do you reconcile these two people? One really heavily influenced you. Yeah, and that I believed in. And so the press were coming around our school at the time, and all I wanted to do was talk to press because I wanted to matter to the story. It was that thing where I had the wrong impulses across the board. I loved Gary. I thought I was his favorite. Why didn't he pick me? Which is a really hard thing to admit to yourself as an adult, that that was the thing that went through your head at 14. Yeah, but at 14, what are you usually thinking about? You're thinking about you. You are thinking about you. And you're thinking about being picked by someone that can validate you. Not being excluded. Exactly. And especially as a teenage girl at the time, I felt inadequate and powerless. He was the one person that said I was okay. That was a thing. And I knew it was all tied up in sex because there were these pictures on the cover of newspapers of the shackles that were found in the cabin and the wigs and the masks. There was a giant blow-up doll. So I knew there was sex involved and that it was bad. And yet at the same time, I also knew people should want to have sex with you. It was all confused in my brain. Now you're back to I'm not pretty enough. Yep, yep. And, wow. and so the thing I did was 
I remember trying to defend Gary. He was great. He was a great coach when when a reporter asked me about him. I don't believe he did this. Even though it was just, oh, case closed. He did it, you know? I, I, I was in denial of that. And then I went to my mom and I was, I don't want to talk to a therapist. I want to talk to a reporter for real. And so, and the school, my school, and I think all the schools where he was a private instructor, didn't want anyone to talk to press. So part of it was also a rebellion against this closely guarded community in this world where everything was supposed to seem so perfect. And I was like, fuck that shit, you know? And so my mom was cool. She still wanted to protect me and didn't totally understand what my motives were, but she, there was a really great reporter, Michael Stone, who recently passed away. He was at New York Magazine and he was doing an in-depth article on this. And she said, I could talk to him off the record, no names. And he would just ask me questions about my experience. And he did. And and then years later, when I asked my mom, and this is kind of the thing that sparked the book, I had forgotten about this story in a weird way. I mean, I hadn't forgotten about it, but I had just compartmentalized it in a very fractured way. There was this guy I loved that taught me how to be a really amazing athlete. He was the best. Oh, I miss him. And then a really scary thing happened with a nightmare person. Oh, that was the same person. So in my 30s, I was actually researching a, another crime for a story, and I remembered Gary. It popped open a vessel in my brain, and I went to my mom. Can we talk about Gary Walensky? And she had this giant folder of every single news clipping, also receipts from that time. So that's how I knew about the extra day. T-shirts, Valentines. Wow. She's collecting evidence. Collecting evidence. And I realized I did not know anything about this story. I did not know anything about this man. It was interesting to me from the perspective of the way that stories were told in the 90s, you know, and especially stories that involved young girls. Even the best reporters were were men. So there's not a lot of girls' voices. It's dangerous to be a female victim. A lot of people didn't speak out if they were, out of self-protection. So what is the lesson learned here with a parent? You know, is it following instincts? Is it having instincts at all? Is it, is there anything that could have helped the situation? I think, I think, what could have helped the situation is listening to girls is just kind of a cultural thing that's just starting to happen now. I think that the testimony against Larry Nasser was a huge game changer because, A, we realized that it's not as clear-cut as you think when you're being abused by someone in power and you're a young girl. Really good parents can be in the room and not realize that it's happening. So it's not about pointing fingers at parents, but it's about listening to girls and also empowering girls to listen to themselves when they do feel uncomfortable. But you didn't feel uncomfortable. I didn't. I didn't. But if there was a platform or community of people talking about that were his students that did talk about their discomfort, it might have made me on higher alert when he said inappropriate things to me. It might have made me question some of his motives in a way that I maybe wouldn't have ordinarily because I was really naive. The hard switch on that is that with that same community, he could have been just a odd 
man mm-hmm. who is perfectly harmless. And when you do have then this community of people saying, well, this guy's acting really weird, then it can, on, on the other hand, ruin someone's life. I, I don't think that he is that fine line between a good guy. I think he was dangerous and some girls knew it and they caught on, they smelled it and they weren't given the power to be heard about it. So yeah, I I don't think it's as murky as we think it is. When Gary was mad, it was scary. And when he was fixated on you, it was intense and potentially creepy. And clear. Yep, yep, yep. And inappropriate. The bottom line is just empowering girls to have voices and to listen to each other and to support each other. On the next episode of Wicked Words. Warren was this sort of pimply kid favored by his father, Rulon Jeffs, who was the president and prophet of the FLDS. That's the fundamentalist Latter-day Saints. Two days after his father died in 2002, he announced to the men, hands off my father's wives, and he begins marrying them all himself. I think in the end he had 78 wives, 24 of which involved children under age 17. If you love historical true crime, please check out my books, American Sherlock and Death in the Air. This has been an Exactly Right, Tenfold More Media production. Alexis Amorosi is our producer. Andrew Epen is our sound designer. Ella Middleton is a researcher for us. Curtis Heath does the composition. Nick Toga did the artwork. And Ilsa Brink designed the website. The executive producers are Georgia Hardstark, Karen Kilgariff, and Danielle Kramer. Follow Wicked Words on Instagram and Facebook at Tenfold More Wicked and on Twitter at Tenfold More. If you are an advertiser interested in advertising on our show, go to midroll.com slash ads. And if you know of a historical true crime story that could use some attention from the crew at Tenfold More Wicked, email us at info at tenfoldmorewicked.com. Listen, subscribe, and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Podcasts.